And certainly it is our prayer that the word of Christ would dwell with us even now as we come to the proclamation of his word to us. So let us pray before we uh, hear God speak to us. Father, I ask that you would once again open our hearts and minds, that you would use the preaching of your word to comfort your people, to fill them with faith, to edify and build them up for the glory of Christ our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing through the Gospel of Matthew as we are coming close now towards the end and towards that uh, terrible week where we read of Christ's crucifixion, but then the joy of His resurrection after. But we find ourselves still in Matthew 22. And uh, we are coming now as Jesus continues to answer these questions that come towards him from these different groups that are challenging him. And we are in verse 23 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and the third, down to the seventh. After them, all the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven." And as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not, have you not read what was said by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. But he said to them, how is then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Now questions and doubts are a standard part, it seems, of our human existence and experience in this life. We often feel so inadequate uh, with life and the many things that come at us and the things we have to do. If you're parents, you, you feel that you're inadequate to raise your children. 
If you work a job, you feel even with all your training and education and experience and the hard work you do, that those just are not sufficient to do the task that is required of you. And so we often feel ill-equipped with the task that we are given. And sometimes that is true as believers, even when it comes to our faith. As Christians, we often feel as we are inadequate sons and daughters of Christ. That we are inadequate disciples. We have doubts. We struggle to take God at His word, even though we do believe it to be true and know it to be so. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it isn't dependent upon the adequacy of you or I. Rather, it's about the adequacy of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Faith in Christ, it's never perfect in this life. And many times it's strong, other times it is not. Our faith in Christ oftentimes is assailed by doubts and questions and, and difficulties. Yet God is clear in His Word that if our faith rests in Christ alone, that is sufficient to save us from all our sins. We often fail, but Jesus never fails. We are inadequate, but He is more than adequate to deliver us from all of our sinful failures. And in our text this morning, we find two more groups approaching Jesus and questioning Him Questioning the king of righteousness, the king of heaven, the king of kings. And their questions, once again, are designed to try to trap him in his own words, to expose him as a fraud, for that is who they believed him to be. Like the question we considered last week, these two questions are asked here of Jesus. Uh, to ex- they, they, they expose the fact that those asking it do not believe him to be the Christ. They felt he was an inadequate savior. They believed he was not the Messiah they were wanting and hoping for. And so we see the first group in our text asks a question that reveals they have an inadequate view of God's power. It comes from a sect called the Sadducees, and we've encountered them before in Matthew's Gospel. Back in Matthew 16, we saw them confront Jesus, and they demand of him a sign, a sign from heaven to prove that he is the Messiah, and then they would believe. And Jesus dismisses them for their hostile unbelief, because he explains, you already have the revelation that you need from God to understand that I am who I claim to be, that I am the Christ. And that unwillingness to accept God's word as authoritative revelation continues even in our text here this morning. You see, the Sadducees, as Matthew even explains, they were known for their denial of the resurrection of the dead. And because of their denial of the resurrection, they also rejected most of the Old Testament scriptures. They affirmed only the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. That means they cut out and they discarded all the prophets, both the minor and the major prophets, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Job. They cut out all the, the historical books. And the reason they did that is because 
the resurrection, like many things pertaining to God and how he works and his nature, it is revealed to us progressively through his word. And we learn more and more as we progress in his written word. And so those later books explain more about the resurrection and speak very explicitly about how God will raise his people to life anew. And they didn't like that. So they stopped at the last book of Moses and cut out the rest. You see, unfortunately, that is how it is with many people when the God of the Bible does not conform to the God of their minds. They, they reject those parts of Scripture that come into conflict with their ideas and their ideals of who God should be. And so it is from that denial of the power of God in the resurrection that they, they question Jesus and they do it through this, this hypothetical situation. Teacher, and remember Matthew uses that term teacher uh, only of those who are outside of Christ's disciples. So they say, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And then they go into this situation of seven brothers, and the first dies, and so his wife goes to the next, and then to the second, and to the third, and you got to wonder, what is wrong with this woman that the husbands keep dying off? <laughs> but they're describing an interesting situation. This was a practice called leveret marriage. It was established within the civil laws of Israel. We actually can read about it in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. And basically it said exactly what you see. If a man dies with no heirs, his brother would marry the widow so that she could raise up children as an inheritance for the deceased kin. And there were several reasons for that practice. Uh, the first was to ensure the, the continuation of the family line, the inheritance, so that the entire household would be financially secure and provided for. The other was is so that widows would be protected and provided for, that they would be cared for. Widows were at a great disadvantage in the society of the ancient world. There were few, if no, jobs for them. They were exposed and vulnerable. And women relied on the provision of their husbands at that time. And later, after their husbands died, uh, the sons would care for their mothers. And so, by marrying the brother, a woman would then have received the protection and provision she needed in order to actually continue to survive and live. Now, in the minds of the Sadducees, the existence of this practice, which by the time of Christ had really, uh, you really didn't see much of it at all, uh, it presented a problem to those who claimed a resurrection of the dead. And you can see that in that scenario that they throw at Jesus. I mean, the woman had married multiple brothers. They kept dying off. So, in the resurrection, whose wife would she be? Whom would she belong to? She could not belong to all of them. And so, Jesus, could, would you really say the resurrection is true? After all, this is part of the law of God, the, the civil law of God to the, the nation state of Israel. The resurrection can't be true then, is it? It seemed like another trap, a perfect trap from which Jesus could not escape. 
But Jesus will not be trapped, as we've seen time and time again. And he looks at them, and with boldness and authority, he says, No, you are wrong. You are wrong. You have been led astray by wandering down the path of your own willful and sinful unbelief. And he points out two areas of their ignorance and spiritual blindness that have crippled their view of being able to see Jesus as the Christ. And he says, first, you don't know the scriptures. (laughs) You claim that you do, but you do not. You are denying the authority and the infallible nature of God's word. If you knew them, you would know they speak about me. And you would know that there is a resurrection. Secondly, he says, because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. God's word is his written revelation to us of his power in the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul explains in Philippians 3, to know Christ is to know the power of his resurrection. But Sadducees deny God's word and that left them with an inadequate view of the power of God. And so Jesus' reply to them addresses two issues with that inadequate view of God's power. First, he says, you do not understand that the resurrected life is a glorified life. See, the resurrected life is better than the present life. But you're thinking about the resurrected life as if it's just a continuation of what is present. Jesus explains that in heaven, God's people are like angels. Now, notice he doesn't say that you will be angels. When we die, we don't become angels. Those are spiritual beings, separate part of creation from humans. They lack the bodily aspect or dimension of their person. But as humans, we are dichotomous. That is to say, we consist of soul or spirit, and body. And when we die, our spirit or soul goes to be with the Lord till his return, at which time our bodies are resurrected uh, and united with our spirit and glorified. That is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. In fact, Jesus, when he was born in the incarnation, which means to become flesh, he took on a real, literal, physical body. And that literal, real, physical body died on a cross. And that literal body rose from the grave and it ascended to heaven. Jesus still has a real body, albeit it is now glorified. And so the scriptures present the fact that in the resurrection, believers receive this glorified body. We become like Christ. And that means that the life of the resurrection is far better than what is present. And the Sadducees were thus wrong to assume that human relationships like marriage would be the same in the resurrection. You see, in this present world, marriage is considered amongst the highest of human relationships, and indeed it is. But in the resurrected life, or what we know to be the life within the fulfilled kingdom of Christ, marriage is too low a relationship to describe what we experience 
together in Christ. We won't need marriage anymore because we'll be able to relate to others, including our husband or our wife, in a glorified manner. We have something better that we will experience. We will have glorified relationships. And the same can be said about every human relationship, not just marriage. Everything will be better. It'll be perfect in Christ. Since believers are given these glorified bodies in the resurrection, that means that all the imperfections of our current body and mind will be done away with. They will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. All the imperfections of our love will be washed clean. All the shortcomings of our our care and compassion for others, including within the relationship of marriage, those will be removed. They won't be a problem anymore. There will be no more sin. And so our love for our husband or our wife or our children or our mother or our father or our grandparents, it will be made better. It will be perfect. Our heavenly relationships do not become something less. They become something more. Secondly, Jesus gets to the very heart of the Sadducees' problem, and that was their faulty theology. Uh, Remember, the Sadducees would only accept the writings of Moses as being true. And Jesus, in his wisdom, he answers them with the writings of Moses. He, He cites a text to them to prove the resurrection. It is from Exodus 3, 6. And there in Exodus 3, 6... It is in the context of God speaking to Moses from the burning bush, calling him to lead his people out of the slavery in Egypt. And God identifies himself to Moses as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs of Israel. Now the patriarchs are long dead when God spoke these words to Moses. They were no longer on earth. But by explaining to Moses that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he is rehearsing to him the nature of his relationship to him, a relationship that is one of covenant. And God's covenants are eternal. And so the relationship that he has with those patriarchs was eternal. It goes beyond death, which means that God still knew these men and they knew him. There had to be an eternal life, that means that the resurrection must be true. God will deliver his people from death itself. And Moses, of course, needed to hear that. He was about to lead his people, the people of God, from the bondage of Egypt, a a picture of death into the land of promise. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And so... Another foe falls before the wisdom and the power of Jesus Christ. And the crowds are astonished at Jesus' answer, for he truly is the king, the king of life, the resurrection and the life. And he will give new life to all who rest in him. That resurrection far exceeds the greatest joys of this present life. And after routing the Sadducees from the field, though, Jesus is now charged by a new but familiar enemy. This time, the Pharisees. 
And they want to regain the advantage. They, they see the Sadducees have been silenced, and so they're thinking, well, now's our chance. And they approach him with yet another question. Having been defeated by his wisdom before, this time they send in the special forces. They send in one of their best. What, what we read here in Matthew is a lawyer, that is to say, an expert in the law. This Pharisee not only knew the written law of God as contained in his word, but he also was skilled in the over 600 additional laws and interpretations that the Pharisees themselves had generated. And the question he asked, though, betrays a very fundamental problem with the thinking of the Pharisees and how they understood God's law. You see, whereas the Sadducees had an inadequate view of God's power, the Pharisees had an inadequate view of God's law. And so he asked Jesus, he says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he asked that, Because Pharisees took a quantitative approach to the law of God. You see, to them, some of the commandments of God were more important than others. Some violations of the law, then, were greater than others. Some sins to them were more evil and thus harder to forgive. And so if one could just focus on those really important laws, or the greatest law then their observance or lack of observance of all the others, uh, they wouldn't matter as much. Their observance of that great law would outweigh the lesser laws they had violated. In fact, the Pharisee rabbis, the Pharisees, they would have regular discussions on, on the commandments and they would describe some as heavy and some as light. But such a view of God's law is inadequate And Jesus is about to demonstrate this to them. And the reason it's inadequate is because it fails to capture the full weightiness, the full power of God's law. Jesus cites to them two texts from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.28. And they are familiar. And he's doing two things with this reply. First, he's exposing this inadequacy of the Pharisees' view by showing them that the law cannot be understood in terms of quantity. No part is greater than the other. All of God's law is important. All of it is great because God is great. All of it is holy because God is holy. There is no part of His law, of His word, that can be ignored. There's no part that makes somebody more righteous because one needs to keep all of the law to achieve the perfect righteousness that the law demands. And that is an impossibility. Nobody, not even the Pharisees, have been able to do that. Nobody can ever do that, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And the Pharisees understood that to some extent. That's why they wanted to quantify the law. If they could just keep the greatest commandment, well, those other violations, it didn't matter. But by citing these two texts together, Jesus is giving a summation, a summary of the entire law of God. And the purpose of every one of God's commandments is this. It's either to love God with all of one's being or to love others as oneself. 
I mean, we see that division even within the tables of the Ten Commandments. They are divided by either loving God or loving one's neighbors. The first commandment, of course, is you shall have no other gods before me. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You shall make no carved image. Love God. You shall uh, not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Love God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Love for God. And then honor your parents. Well, that would be to love your neighbor as yourself. Your parents are your neighbor. You shall not murder. Love your neighbor. Do not commit adultery. Love your neighbor. Do not steal. Love your neighbor. Do not bear false witness. Love your neighbor and do not covet. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so what we see is all of the law of God is essential. All of it is important. In fact, that is what Jesus tells us in verse 40. Notice what he says. On these two commandments, or we could say on the summary of these two commandments, depends all the law and the prophets. It's all important. There isn't a greater commandment. You need to keep all of it. And the second thing Jesus shows in his reply is that the law is more than just mere practices and disciplines. It has to do with the heart. Notice the language he uses that speaks of the whole person. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is the inner self, the innermost part of our being, the causative source of all that we do in life. He says, we are to love God with all our soul. That is our will, our our volition, the part of us that chooses and decides and, and takes action. And he says, we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind or strength. That is to say, all our reasoning, our ability to think and to investigate and to learn and to grow and to understand and use knowledge and logic. You see, obedience to God's law then concerns the whole law with the whole person. The problem with legalism, the the, the problem with those who believe that they can obey their way into the kingdom of heaven, that they can obey God's commandments enough so as to earn His favor, is not that they make too little of God's law. It's that they make or not that they make too much of it, they make too little of it. They think they can actually keep it to the point of justifying themselves in God's sight. They are lowering the standard that God has set so that they can achieve it. But we aren't allowed to do that. There is but one lawgiver and he is God. And thus to break even one part of his law is to break all of it. And so if we think that we can earn the favor of a holy God through our own law-keeping, we are gravely mistaken. We have an inadequate view of the law. And here's the real danger of having both an inadequate view of God's power, like that of the Sadducees, and having an inadequate view of His law, like the Pharisees. They will result in an inadequate view of Christ. As the Pharisees are gathered together, Jesus now turns to them and he asks them a question of his own. He he says in verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. 
Now that answer, and we, we've studied that before, what the son of David means and how that is a, a correct title for God, that is a right answer. The Pharisees are not wrong in saying he is the son of David. It is not incorrect, but it is incomplete. You see, the Messiah would be David's son, but he is more than just David's son. He's also the son of God. They were wanting the son of David, who, like David, would bring about a victory over the enemies of God's people on this present earth, in this very moment. They wanted a physical victory. They wanted heaven on earth. Not a new heavens and not a new earth. But that kind of king that could bring that kind of victory, as nice as that would have been for them, it was too small. That kind of king was far too weak to accomplish what was truly needed. If we go back to the previous two questions in our text, we see what people truly need. For what we need is this, we need a new life. We need to be resurrected. And we need some way that we can keep the whole law of God with our whole being because we can't do it ourselves. We need a way to love Him with our whole being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Which is something the Pharisees or the Sadducees or anybody, none of them have the power to do. Because without being given new life, all are literally dead in their sin. So what we need, what people need, is a Savior, who a Messiah who can grant life, who can resurrect from the dead. Not just physical death, but the spiritual death that we are in. By giving victory over death and ending its curse, we need a Messiah who can cancel the death of the law that stands against us, accusing us of our failure to love God with our whole being and our neighbors as ourselves. We need a Savior who is not only the Son of David, but who is also God the Son. And Jesus shows us right here that is exactly who He is. He cites from Psalm 110. This is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that is full of high Christology. It points to Jesus Christ, written by David. It speaks of the coming Messiah as a king who will display divine authority and power to rescue and deliver his people. And they will in turn then worship him as their high priest, opening the way to them uh, for them to God as he executes royal judgment on those who war against him and his people. And David, the author of Psalm 110, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says here in our text, calls that Messiah Lord. Now, if he was just David's son, that would be absurd, because kings do not show that kind of honor to their own sons. After all, they're the king and the son is just a prince. They're subject to the, to the king. But David is calling this Messiah his Lord, his king. He's putting himself under, under the authority of this king. So it cannot be just David's son. He must also be God the son. And now the part of Psalm 110 that Jesus focuses upon 
is of a victorious nature. It speaks of the Messiah's triumph over his enemies. I mean, look at the language again. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies under your feet. That is the language of victory, the language of triumph. The fact that Jesus says this shortly before his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion and suffering is very significant. In the inadequate view of these Pharisees and Sadducees, the Messiah would not suffer. He would sit upon David's throne in victory. To suffer was unthinkable. But it isn't a physical throne that soon awaits Jesus here in Matthew's Gospel. Rather, a cross. And yet through that very instrument of torture and death, Jesus would put to death his enemies of death and sin and Satan forever. He will defeat and triumph over the grave through his resurrection. And he will be victorious over the curse of the law by bearing the penalty of that law for his people. And now, now after having won that victory, after having triumphed and put those enemies under his feet, now he sits His work completed, the victory won at the right hand of the Father. But first he had to pick up the cross. And because he did that, we who believe in him, we share in that victory over sin and death. See, the triumph of our Christ is our triumph. And that means that for you and I, this morning... Even with all of our doubts, Jesus is greater than our greatest of doubts. Christ's suffering was more than sufficient to save you from your sin. We are inadequate, but He is more than adequate. I mean, consider the kind of people that Jesus saves and makes His own in the, in the Gospels. He redeems and He loves people with specific stories and specific names and specific needs and significant weaknesses and doubts. Thomas had doubts that Jesus was actually risen after testimony and testimony and testimony of the other apostles, disciples, telling him, no, the Lord has risen, we've seen Him. And he says, I won't believe until I can touch his body, touch his wounds myself. And of course he did and believed and Christ redeems him. Peter, with lapse of faith and lapse of faith and lapse of faith, is still called an apostle and God still uses him as he lays down the foundation of the gospel in the apostles and builds his church. Yes, Christ loved These people, despite the doubts and the inadequacies of their faith. And so what that means then is that you and I, with all of our doubts, all of our inadequacies, all of our questions, we can go to Him and we can trust Him. Even though you struggle with the imperfections of your love for God and the deficiencies of your own faith, you can go to Him. He is a good and kind Savior. His love is perfect. His grace is more than enough. Jesus is greater than your greatest doubts. Jesus can answer every question 
with heavenly authority and wisdom and grace and kindness if you bring it to him. For he is the king. And he has defeated death and hell and sin. And if the king can defeat death, surely he can defeat every doubt you might have. And so trust him. Let his victory, let his triumph be yours through faith in Christ alone. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. We're thankful for the truth that you give us. To reveal to us Christ our Savior and Lord. We thank you, Father, that in Christ we are known by you. Despite the weaknesses of our faith, the questions, the doubts, that we can rest wholly in him and know your love and forgiveness. We pray that you impress these things upon our minds as we go forth as your children into this world as ambassadors of Christ, heralding this good news for all to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.